Real quickly, there's some more adult stuff this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're continuing the Epic of Gilgamesh, an ancient Sumerian story. You'll see that if you're an epic adventurer, about to leave to fight the greatest battle of your life, that you should bring some tiny shoes with you. Because apparently big bad guys love tiny shoes. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's Splinter Cat. He's a hard-headed, serious cat who would be terrifying to a whole race of Lord of the Rings characters. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 45B, Huge. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's show is brought to you by Capital One's CreditWise app. Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want, right in the app. It's free to everyone, so download CreditWise today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on presence of credit history with TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank, USA, NA. Previously on this podcast, Gilgamesh was the king of the sprawling city of Uruk. And he was pretty soundly detested by his people. So they cried out to their goddess, and she brought them Enkidu, who would help deliver them. There was a brawl between Gilgamesh and Enkidu, which led to them becoming best friends, and Gilgamesh changing his ways. They both learned that they would die someday. So in an effort to have their names live on, they decided to go to the great cedar forest and fight a fire-breathing giant named Humbaba, or Hugeness, and bring back lumber and build walls for the city of Uruk. The blacksmith was anxious. Rumor had it that Gilgamesh was a changed demigod. He didn't murder people over perceived slights, or demand really vile rites anymore. Ever since this other hairy, muscly gentleman arrived in Uruk, Gilgamesh had been sober, and even a bit melancholy, but a fair and just ruler. The blacksmith laid the weapons out before his king and the king's hairy new best friend. He had to have a few people help him take the axes, which weighed about 360 pounds each, and the swords, which weighed a mere 300 pounds each. The big hairy guy picked up an axe and sword like it was nothing, and swung them around. In all, Enkidu took an axe, two swords, some arrows, and a bow. Gilgamesh was a bit underwhelmed. Not murderously so, which was a nice change of pace, but the blacksmith only smiled. He had made something special for his king. He unveiled the axe. Pushing 400 pounds, it was called the Might of Heroes, which not only sounds like kind of a fun D&D module, but it's also a very nice way to pander to your king. Gilgamesh picked up an axe, which was almost a fifth of a metric ton, and swung it through the air. Yes, yes, the Might of Heroes would do. He'll also take a couple swords too, because those look cool, and what's an extra 400 pounds? Gilgamesh called the assembly of his people, and told them that he was going to fight Humbaba, or Hugeness, the giant that lived in the great cedar forest. If Gilgamesh returned, it would be with timber to build the walls. If not, he would leave behind a great and enduring name. The people spoke up, saying, well, it might actually be the latter. Hugeness the giant is said to not be able to die, and human weapons apparently don't hurt him. Also, we're going to go on record saying that we think this is an enormously bad idea. Did Gilgamesh know anything about hugeness or the tribes of the Cedar Forest? Or even how to find the Cedar Forest? 
Gilgamesh didn't quite know what to say. He turned to Enkidu, who had always been of the opinion that you should be scared of the evil, deathless, fire-breathing giant. Also, he might have been literally six months old, so he had no idea how to find or fight hugeness. Gilgamesh slung the might of heroes over his back. Huh, he said. I guess we should go talk to my mom. As we've talked about, Gilgamesh's mom was a goddess, and she also apparently lived in town. I don't quite know how this works, but they went to her. She blessed their trip and pleaded with the gods to protect them. Then she revealed that Enkidu had been to the Cedar Forest before, had seen Humbaba, and knew the way over the mountains and through the valleys to the forest. I'm not going to dwell on this for too long. I was under the impression that we had seen basically all of Enkidu's life up to this point, especially since he was given wisdom and turned from his wild ways. I'm going to chalk this up to the fact that the story was found on fragments of tablets, and there are some glaring gaps, and we'll just work around it. Gilgamesh's mother, Ninsen, did entrust Enkidu with her son's life, right then and there, making he and Gilgamesh kind of like brothers. In fact, they'll refer to each other as brothers from here on out. And she asked Enkidu to be Gilgamesh's protector. She gave him an amulet, and I'm going to say that when the amulet touched him, it gave him everything he needed to know, all the knowledge, to guide Gilgamesh to the great cedar forest. Gilgamesh said goodbye to his mother, and he and his buddy Enkidu started the 600-mile trek to the cedar forest. For as big as Gilgamesh and Enkidu were, they did not neglect cardio. Over the next few days, they got their steps in. They traveled 20 leagues on foot before stopping for breakfast on the first day, which is about 70 miles. They traveled another 100 miles before stopping for the night. They had a few days like that before they were at the gates of the Great Cedar Forest, nearly 600 miles in all. They walked up to the gates that were maybe made of copper or bronze. Enkidu went first and pushed the gate open. It wasn't even locked. This was going to be easy. Then he noticed something. His arm was limp. Like, wet noodle limp. He picked up his right arm and jiggled it with his left. This was probably not a great sign. He turned to Gilgamesh and warned him not to touch the gate. Also, they probably shouldn't keep going, on account of Enkidu just touching a gate and it giving him a dead arm. Gilgamesh laughed at Enkidu and told Enkidu to fall in behind him. Gilgamesh, a man resolute in action, who is not foolhardy. I can see Enkidu rolling his eyes and saying, I'm not foolhardy, I just opened a gate. No, the gate we needed to get through, but whatever. Gilgamesh shrugged. He still had use of his hands. He was going, and there was nothing Enkidu could do to stop him. Enkidu shrugged and fell in behind Gilgamesh. The forest was a wondrous and terrifying place. Cedars the size of redwoods all around, and the mountain of the gods stretching up before them. Enkidu's dead arm slowly got better, but they found as they walked deeper into the forest that now they couldn't talk. They walked further, in the evening shade of the massive cedars, following the tracks of some great beast. Possibly hugeness, it didn't matter. Their plan was to kill anything they saw as soon as they saw it with their ridiculously heavy weapons. Night was beginning to fall, and Enkidu stayed back to set up camp while Gilgamesh took a sacrifice of grain to the mountain. Gilgamesh returned, ate in silence, and then the two best friends fell asleep holding hands. They were very close. With Gilgamesh and Enkidu, I've read in some places that they might have had a relationship. Gilgamesh was told before Enkidu arrived 
that he would love Enkidu as one loves a wife. I've read in some places that that, and other things in the story, could indicate that they were romantically involved. I've read in other places that they loved each other deeply, as friends, but weren't in love. There really isn't a clear answer, and it's something that historians and scholars have debated for years. Okay, so Gilgamesh had a number of dreams, and we won't go through every one. Enkidu interpreted them. One involved Gilgamesh fighting a bull, and getting his tongue bitten somehow. I will admit to not being super well-versed in bullfighting, but if your tongue is getting bitten by the bull, you might be doing it wrong. The bull was actually one of their gods, Shamash, the sun god, who would help him. In another, hugeness the giant was a mountain, and Gilgamesh was rescued from it. Anyway, that was it for dream night one. When they woke up, they found that they could talk again. They packed up and continued walking to the center of the cedar forest, to the mountain of the gods, and the cedar tree that rivaled it for height. That day, they hiked 170 miles, with 1,200 pounds on their backs, and settled down for a night of dreaming and handholding. Enkidu probably didn't need to interpret that night's dream. In it, daylight failed, darkness fell, lightning flashed, and fires blazed all around. The clouds rained down death, and all was turned to ashes. He did not sleep well. Despite the dream probably being overpacked with over-the-top ill omens, Gilgamesh was tired of all this walking, of waiting for Hugeness the giant to come get them. In under an hour, they were at the cedar tree in the center of the forest, the large one, and Gilgamesh took out his axe, the might of heroes, and began chopping. Somewhere far off in the forest, Humbaba, or Hugeness the Terrible, heard the axe strikes and began coming their way. You know what's great? Getting a lot of sleep. You know what's maybe not great? Trying to squeeze that sleep in right before the big boss fight. And that will be right after this. Capital One knows you've got questions about your credit. You may be asking, who's really in charge of my credit score? Or how does my credit actually work? That's why Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want, right in the app. And it's free to everyone, Capital One customer or not. In fact, millions of CreditWise users have improved their score by 20 points or more, so download the app for free today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank USA and A. All right, now back to the show. As it turned out, chopping down a tree almost as tall as a mountain with a 400-pound axe was mildly difficult. Combine that with the fact that Gilgamesh had spent most of the night tossing and turning and, well, Gilgamesh had to lay down and take a quick nap before the final boss fight. Enkidu was not excited about this. He could hear the far-off footsteps of hugeness. He could feel the earth reverberating. He screamed for Gilgamesh to wake up. And Gilgamesh did. Apparently, all he needed was a power nap because he leapt from the ground with a resolve to kill Hugeness the Giant and win his fame. Enkidu was still scared. Remember, he had the knowledge of this giant. He told Gilgamesh that they wouldn't win. Fighting this monster was like fighting a flood, a fire-breathing flood. Hugeness would crush them like he crushed the trees. Also, he had the face of a lion and dragon fangs, which, great way to bury the lead, Enkidu. Enkidu paused. He said, you know what? I have just talked myself out of this whole thing. I'm going to head back to Uruk, tell your mom you died, 
and I'll spread your story far and wide with how you died, because you're going to die. Gilgamesh looked at the trees moving far off in the forest. Humbaba. Hugeness was coming. He said today would not be the day that he died. He was blessed by the gods. I'm going to quote what he says next because I think it's kind of cool. You'll know when I stop quoting the text. Gilgamesh said, We shall go forward and fix our eyes on this monster. If your heart is fearful, throw away fear. If there's terror in it, throw away terror. Take your axe in hand and attack. He who leaves this fight unfinished is not at peace. Then, Hugeness the demon burst out from the trees. He was several times their size with the face of a lion, dragon fangs, and fire breath. Okay, never mind, run, Gilgamesh said, and the two brave heroes ran in the other direction. I'm picturing the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, but with fire breath and a lion's head, charging through the forest, roaring after the heroes. Gilgamesh cried out to Shamash, the sun god who was supposed to help them, essentially asking him to not even worry about helping him kill Hugeness the Terrible, but just to help he and Enkidu escape. Shama assured them, and he could do one better. In addition to the roaring of Hugeness behind them, they heard a deafening blast from the forest in front of them. Before them, the eight winds had been summoned to help them. The north wind, the scorching wind, the icy wind, the storm winds, and the others flew from the trees like dragons, passing Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and weaving themselves around Humbaba's arms, legs, and neck, keeping him in place. Also, they bit his eyes just because. Gilgamesh and Enkidu slowed down when they realized they weren't being chased anymore, and Gilgamesh turned around to see the massive demon, Humbaba, Hugeness, bound by Shamash. Gilgamesh waved his hand, and the wind stopped biting Hugeness's eyes. Enkidu joined Gilgamesh, while Humbaba caught his breath. Hey guys, Hugeness the demon said, I think we've had a bit of a misunderstanding. I have a problem getting to know people. Maybe it stems from the fact that I never had a mother or a father. I was birthed from a mountain. And all I've known is trying to kill people who come to steal the cedars. For as long as I can remember, I was given this duty. That said, Gilgamesh, maybe if you free me, we can be friends? If you let me go, I'll totally build you a palace with the cedars so that we can hang out and do best friend stuff. Gilgamesh felt bad for the vicious demon and paused, but Enkidu rolled his eyes. He turned to Gilgamesh. Wait, you can't be considering this. If you let him go, we die. But he has such a super sad backstory. And he just wants a friend, Gilgamesh said. And Gilgamesh was already leading the bound hugeness to a stump to sit down. Yeah, Enkidu, hugeness said. Keep your mouth shut. You're just the hired help. Oh, you're worried that I'll be Gilgamesh's best friend and that we'll fall asleep holding hands. Tell me, how many awesome cedar palaces have you built, my new best friend? The number zero, right? It's zero. I'm in the anachronistic ballpark. Hmm. If you can't tell, that is heavily paraphrased, but it's basically what was said. Enkidu turned to Gilgamesh. Super sad backstory notwithstanding, Humbaba must die. It's the whole reason they came here. They can take the cedars and return to Uruk and build the wall and have everlasting glory and not stay in the cedar forest, listening to the false promises of a demon and probably getting burned alive as soon as they let him go. Gilgamesh said, oh, oh yeah, the whole wall thing. Wow, that was almost a bad move. Yeah, of course we should kill him. You want to do it together or take turns or... Enkidu was happy that Gilgamesh had come around and Hugens the Terrible strained against the winds binding him when he saw Gilgamesh pull out the might of heroes and his 300-pound sword. In three blows, two from Gilgamesh and one from Enkidu, Hugeness the Terrible was dead. 
When the life went out of him, there was a shockwave that shook all the trees in the forest. Even the mountain trembled. I guess forget about all those tribes that apparently lived in the forest and hugeness not being able to be harmed by our weapons. Like I said, there are a lot of gaps. The pair that could cover over 100 miles in a day on foot while carrying over 1,000 pounds of weapons each had absolutely no trouble clearing whole swaths of the forest very quickly. In a few days, it was done and they had enough for the walls of Uruk. They would build a raft and drop the logs into the Euphrates River for the long ride home. But there was one thing they had left to do. They grabbed the mane of the dead demon lion's head and in one stroke of the might of heroes, it was off. Gilgamesh and Enkidu hefted it into a leather bag and dragged the bag to the foot of the mountain to leave the head there as an offering to the gods. They did not expect one of the gods to actually be there. There, standing in his radiance, was Enlil. Enlil, the sky god, was actually the one who gave Hugeness the job of defending the forest, and he was less than pleased to be presented with Humbaba's decomposing head in a bag. He did not give Gilgamesh and Enkidu a chance to speak. He said that this would not end well for them. Maybe Gilgamesh knew that this god outranked Shamash, the sun god that had told him to kill Hugeness. Regardless, Gilgamesh and Enkidu just shrugged when Enlil cursed them, picked up the head of Hugeness, and disappeared. Okay, real quickly, the version of events I told are generally accepted to be the standard events, but there is another version that says Gilgamesh and Enkidu came with 50 men and tricked Humbaba into a conversation. They had some things for him to trade with him to relinquish his control over the forest. They were as follows, Gilgamesh's heretofore unmentioned sister as concubine, flower, big shoes, tiny shoes, precious stones, an item that's apparently been lost to history, and a bundle of tree branches. Merry Christmas, Humbaba. Enjoy your tiny shoes. While he was trying on his big and tiny shoes, Gilgamesh punched him in his lion face and immobilized him. In this one, he almost convinced Gilgamesh to spare him. But at the last instant, Enkidu swung his axe and murdered Humbaba. Oh, and those 50 guys they brought? While Gilgamesh and Enkidu were talking with Humbaba, those guys were clear-cutting the forest and getting as much cedar as they could, I guess in case things didn't work out. Aside from it being the more standard and accepted version, you can probably see why I went with the version I did. Gilgamesh was bathing in the river before heading back to Uruk by river. He was going to put on his kingly clothes and ride into town in style with his cedar logs behind him. He dried out his long locks of hair and cleaned his weapons. Demon blood corrodes, guys. Up on the mountain, the goddess Ishtar saw Gilgamesh bathing. Hmm, that Gilgamesh, good looking guy. In an instant, she was in front of him in all of her beauty cutting directly to the chase. She asked Gilgamesh, not only for the seed of his body, but to become her husband. She told him that she would harness a chariot of gold for him, and it would be pulled by storm demons. Kings, rulers, and princes would bow before him, and his sheep would have twins, and his goats triplets. That last point seems odd, but if you remember from the Greek episodes, set 1,000 years after this, livestock were a symbol of wealth and power, so having goats that would always have triplets was pretty appealing. She stood, arms crossed, waiting for an answer. Yeah, no, Gilgamesh said. No, thank you. What? Ishtar said. Yeah, Gilgamesh replied. I appreciate the offer of the goats, storm demons, and all that talk about my seed, but no thanks. Hard pass on this one. The rage in Ishtar was starting to boil. Why not? She asked. Ishtar, 
called the Queen of Heaven, was well known for not just loving them and leaving them, but for loving them and utterly destroying their lives when she got bored. Gilgamesh listed off an incomplete list of her former lovers and husbands who she had destroyed. One she turned into a wolf. One was a bird whose wing she broke, who just sits around crying all the time now. One was her father's gardener. She turned him into a mole and left him blind, deep in the earth. Gilgamesh could go on, but he felt like he probably didn't need to. Her jaw was clenched so tight that she felt like she might crack a tooth. Ishtar didn't say anything, and she just disappeared. Gilgamesh, happy that angering and personally offending a vengeful goddess would have absolutely no ramifications, finished drying his hair before starting on the long ride back to Uruk with Enkidu and all of their cedar logs. For some reason, Gilgamesh was surprised when the Bull of Heaven attacked. It was formerly under the control of Anu, Ishtar's father and the father of the gods. There are a lot of names. Ishtar was the one who just hit on Gilgamesh. She went straight to dad and she told him that she was really mad at Gilgamesh. She narrowed her eyes and said that she needed the Bull of Heaven. It was a deity kept by Anu and its feet made the earth shake and it could kill with a snort. Ishtar wanted to send it after Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh had turned her down and chastised her for all the terrible things she had done to her former lovers. Anu said, yeah, I'm kind of on Gilgamesh's side on this one. Maybe if you hadn't done so many terrible things to your previous guys, it would be easier to trick new ones. No, you can't have the bull to send after the demigod who turned you down. Ishtar said, okay, I didn't want to have to do this, but if you don't give me the bull, I'm gonna go down to the depths of hell and break the door. Then dead people are gonna come up to the world of the living. Is that what you want, dad? Do you want zombies running around? Because if you do, then don't give me the bull of heaven. Anu sighed, okay, no, he said, I definitely do not want the undead roaming the earth and confusing everyone and stinking of the place. Take the bull. And in another gap, that was actually years and years after what happened in the great cedar forest. After Gilgamesh and Enkidu had returned to Uruk, to much fanfare, and had built a cedar wall, Ishtar had tried to punish them with seven years of famine, but Uruk survived. And that's when she knew she must have the bull. Unfortunately, the texts don't have a ton of description on the actual bull. Basically, I think it was just a large bull, and according to some pictures, it might have had wings. Gilgamesh was sitting down for a meal when the ground shook. Earthquakes weren't unheard of, but those accompanied by a deafening bellowing that kills hundreds of people at once, well, that was a bit more noteworthy. Gilgamesh rushed from his palace to find his city in chaos. The gate had been flung open, and every time the bull stomped its hooves, the ground split and cracked, opening up into a chasm. Whenever it bellowed, it hit the city like a wave, and those closest to the bull fell down dead instantly. Gilgamesh looked at Enkidu, and the pair nodded at each other. They picked up their heavy, heavy weapons and rushed the bull. Enkidu went before Gilgamesh. He had been given a duty by Gilgamesh's mother to protect Gilgamesh, and other than that one critical time when he almost abandoned Gilgamesh to face hugeness by himself, he intended to keep that promise. He would protect Gilgamesh from the blasts. As they made their way through Uruk, they were fighting against the crowd running in the other direction, away from the bull at the gates. Then, they heard another bellow. Before them, maybe 20 feet up, 200 people, the entire crowd fell dead. Those who lived ran even faster, in the opposite direction of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Stepping as fast as they could over entirely too many bodies, Enkidu could see that they would not make it. 
The bull was still about 100 meters off, but it could bellow at any time. Then, the unthinkable happened. The bull bellowed again. There was nothing between the pair and the bull. They would be hit, and they would be killed instantly. Enkidu stopped, looked back, and gave his adopted brother a sad smile. He held out his arms and took the brunt of the bellow. Enkidu fell to the ground, while Gilgamesh looked on in terror. Gilgamesh forgot about the bull, Uruk, and everything but Enkidu. He dropped to the ground and held his brother's head in his hands, and Enkidu smiled back. He thought that it was nice Gilgamesh cared so much. Uh, he wasn't dead. Apparently, they were immune to death by heavenly bull bellow, which really came in handy in this situation. He was just in a lot of pain, but it wasn't anything permanent. He leapt back to his feet, and they continued running after the bull. Enkidu, spurred on by being knocked to the ground, ran out ahead of Gilgamesh. He leapt in the air, and let's assume he did a really cool somersault. He landed on the bull's back. He grabbed the horns and held on. For the bull, terrorizing a Copper Age Mesopotamian city was all fun and games, until a hairy, muscly man jumped on your back and held on for dear life. Enkidu grabbed onto the bull's horns and held tight, while the bull bucked and snorted. Enkidu, being Enkidu, did not move, and eventually the bull began to tire. Seeing as he couldn't get the man off his back, he began running away from the city. The bull did not sign up for this. He made it about 10 feet before he was running in place. Gilgamesh was standing behind the bull, holding its tail. Calmly, the three-quarter demigod pulled the sword from his belt. He could hear Enkidu over the snorting and the grunting. There was a spot behind the horns, but above the neck, which would kill the beast. In one motion, Gilgamesh yanked the tail and leapt forward. And in the next moment, the bull of heaven was dead. Gilgamesh's 200-pound sword buried in its neck. There was a lot of rejoicing in the city, until there wasn't. The people, the ones who weren't dead, were dancing and celebrating the death of the bull. That was when the goddess, Ishtar, appeared on the wall. Remember that she was the one who propositioned Gilgamesh, but he turned her down. She looked down at Gilgamesh and Enkidu over the bull's body, and her countenance darkened. She said, Woe to you, Gilg... But Enkidu interrupted her. He asked her about the last deity who dropped by Uruk to threaten Gilgamesh. Did anyone remember what happened to him? Oh wait, he's right here. Enkidu tore one of the massive legs off the massive bull and shook it in the direction of Ishtar. Did she want some of what the bull got? Because Enkidu and his best buddy were more than happy to give her a nice heaping spoonful of battle axe. If that's what she was after. But no, 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 go ahead, finish your sentence. It started with woe to Gilgamesh or something. Ishtar did not finish her sentence. Eyes wide at this very direct challenge to her authority, she disappeared. Gilgamesh turned to his best buddy and thanked him. That was really nice of him. Granted, the last time Gilgamesh had just spurned her advances, she sent a pagan super bovine after them, and Gilgamesh was a little unsure what would happen after violently threatening her life with a severed bull limb. But whatever it was, they would face it together. Enkidu snapped awake, or not awake, probably not awake. He didn't remember falling asleep in the middle of the assembly of the gods, so he guessed he was dreaming. The gods were not happy. They were talking about how one of them must die. One of who, Enkidu asked. He tried to stand up and speak to them, but he just moved through them. They couldn't see or hear him. Then, it became inescapably clear. 
the gods, we're talking about the ones who killed Humbaba and the bull of heaven. And Leo, remember Humbaba's caretaker, was demanding their death. Shamash, the sun god, Gilgamesh's god, was arguing on their behalf, but he was losing. It got quiet. Enkidu couldn't hear for a moment, but then Shamash just hung his head. He's innocent, Shamash said. Why must Enkidu die? Enkidu woke up in his bed in Uruk a moment later. It had just been a dream. It could have meant anything, right? Yeah, Enkidu thought that until he started coughing. A fear gripped Enkidu's stomach. Then he came down with a fever. Then the aching. Enkidu was getting sick. Oh, I read elsewhere that maybe it wasn't some spontaneous illness, but that he was injured in the fight with the bull and that that wound became infected. That works too. Gilgamesh tried to put it out of his mind. His friend couldn't be getting sick. This was ridiculous. He was Enkidu, made by the gods themselves. He wouldn't die here in his bed? Gilgamesh laughed it off. They were in a big city, and they had the best medicine 2700 BC had to offer. Enkidu was going to be fine, Gilgamesh said. And at least as he watched his friend coughing so much that he couldn't breathe, the once great warrior being helped to his bed, Gilgamesh tried to convince himself that everything was going to be all right. Next week, we'll be wrapping up the story of Gilgamesh. We'll see a depiction of the afterlife that could be described as the saddest Big Bird cosplay ever, and we'll also talk about the Great Flood, and see if Gilgamesh can avoid the one thing he's always feared. I want to say thanks to 37Av, Coyotes by 90, who is John Galt? Peacock Puzzler, Joshua0980, this one is gold, Morgan Fitzpee, and yeah, I know, I wish I had Jim Dale's voice too, but here we are. Grithner, Meg0126, Cut the Rope Monster Lover, Croida, 5724836, Nashville, Laurel26, Love Doll, and G Blaze. For the reviews on iTunes, thank you all so much. You're awesome. Thank you for not just listening, but taking the time to go in and write a review. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the iOS Podcasts app are the best places. And you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of one pound of cereal marshmallows, the ones from Lucky Charms, not one with the cereal podcast logo on them or something, you can get extra episodes, source back ebooks, and ad free shows that, with 15 episodes in the member feed, will probably last much longer than a pound of cereal marshmallows. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info. The creature this week is Splinter Cat from the eastern United States. It's said to exist in the same longitude of the Great Lakes and the Gulf of Mexico, and goes all the way from Michigan to the Florida Panhandle. And it's prevalent all the way across to the East Coast. It's a cat, obviously. It doesn't rob your neighbors like the butter cat, or go on cactus alcohol fuel benders like the cactus cat. No, Splinter Cat is just a hard-headed, serious, and sober cat, and thinks that if you want to steal your neighbor's butter, you should just do it yourself. Most cats eat rodents or small nuisance animals, but the Splinter Cat likes to take things up a notch. He likes to eat raccoons. You don't want him to try to get that raccoon out of your attic, though, because his hunting method leads to why he's called the Splinter Cat. He has a very particular set of skills. Skills that make him a nightmare to raccoons sleeping peacefully in hollow trees between nightly trash binges. The Splinter Cat will climb the highest tree he can find and look for a tree in which a raccoon might be sleeping. He will lower his head, breathe deeply, and launch himself at the tree in question. 
exploding through it with his extremely hard skull. If there's a sweet and savory raccoon asleep in the tree, it will be sufficiently stunned or killed by the hit that it will not be too difficult for the splinter cat to gulp down that surely not disgusting raccoon without too much of a fight. Then, Splinter Cat will climb the next highest tree, lower his head, and dive bomb into another tree, looking for that succulent raccoon center. If you're wondering what happens when Splinter Cat picks the wrong tree, one that maybe isn't hollow with that delectable raccoon treat in the middle, but actually is just hardwood all the way through, well, Splinter Cat is not as discerning as he probably should be, and he just goes at the first tree he sees, every time, hollow or not. He'll explode through hardwood too, and that's why he's always in a bad mood. He has a constant headache from picking the wrong tree too many times. In addition to mouth-watering raccoon meat, he enjoys the occasional treat of honey, and those trees are generally easier to spot. The problem here is kind of obvious. Even when he's treating himself, he has to deal with a downed hive of angry bees. The most obvious way to avoid the wrath of Splinter Cat is to not be a raccoon, tree, or honey which is something I think most of the listeners on this podcast have covered. I don't see a lot of downloads from the Fangorn Forest, so I think we're all safe from Splinter Cat, which is good, because Splinter Cat will just keep diving through trees until there's just one left. Move on. People will say that the damage is caused by winds or storms or lightning, but I think it's obvious that it's a hard-headed cat who likes to snack on raccoons. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to other music are in the show notes. And thanks again to Capital One's CreditWise app for sponsoring us today. Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want, right in the app. It's free to everyone, so download CreditWise today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on the presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank, USA, NA. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.